Welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast, helping you propel your writing business to a whole new level. And now, here's your host, Ed Gandia. Hey there, welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast. I am your host, Ed Gandia, and this is the podcast for business writers and copywriters who want to earn more in less time doing work they love for better clients. Just a quick reminder before we get started that you can find the detailed show notes for this episode at b2blauncher.com forward slash episode 163. And those notes include a summary of our discussion here today, as well as links to resources we mentioned during the show. Your habits will directly determine your level of success as a freelance professional. And I've never been so convinced of this as I am today, because I've come to realize over the years that everything is habits, absolutely everything. Then you couple that idea with the fact that when you're the boss, when you work for yourself, it's really all up to you. There's no one looking over your shoulder, no one in the office trying to sabotage your efforts, no office politics, no one checking when you clocked in and out that day. So if we want to succeed, it's more important than ever to develop and maintain the right habits in every facet of our business. Until the past few years, this idea was mostly academic. The practical advice in the area of habit development was mostly anecdotal. It was mostly untested. You know, we've always heard you got to develop good habits. But, you know, it's something at least I took as more of a eh, feel-good thing. Sure, I understand that. Over the past decade, however, huge research and discoveries in the field of behavioral science have changed this idea. And one of the experts in this field is my guest for this week's episode, James Clear. James is the author of the newly released book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. He's an author and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur Magazine, Time Magazine, and on CBS This Morning. His website receives millions of visitors each month and hundreds of thousands subscribe to his popular email newsletter at jamesclear.com. He's a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. This is a fascinating interview with a guy who thinks about this topic day and night and has spent years applying the science of habit development to everyday situations you and I face every day in our freelance businesses. It's an important topic, one that I urge you to check out. This is a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. James, great to have you on the show again, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be chatting with you again. It's always great to talk with you, and uh, this this topic is one that's near and dear to my heart. Um, it's um, I, every day I realize more and more how important habits are to really building and growing a successful freelance business. So I'm I'm excited to be talking with you about that. Excited about the book that you got coming out. Um, I, I'd like to kind of kick things off with just trying to get a sense for how you got here. Um, because you and I have been talking for a while. We've known each other for a while. Um, in my impression, I might be wrong. I've never asked you this, is that you kind of arrived at this topic 
in a roundabout way. So I'm curious to know how you got to where you are today. You're really passionate about writing and talking about habit development. Um, how did how did you arrive here? Yeah, so I guess it was a little bit of a roundabout way in the sense that I I didn't really have the language to describe what I was doing or what I was learning. So I guess I, we could say I learned it through practice before like theory. So I was a um, I was an athlete uh, all the way through college and played baseball in college. And uh, you know, as any athlete can tell you, there's all sorts of habits that you have when you're at practice and training and in the gym and so on. And uh, a lot of those practices are the things that I learned rippled over into other areas of my life, whether it was, you know, at school at the time or later in graduate school or when I started my own business and, uh, things that went well, I didn't really have a language for why they were going well. Like I couldn't tell you the science behind it at the time, but I was practicing it. And it wasn't until a few years later when I launched my business that I, I tried a couple different businesses the first like two years or so that I was an entrepreneur. And uh, most of them didn't really go anywhere, and I couldn't figure out why. And so I started studying consumer psychology like to figure out why would someone sign up to an email list? Why would someone buy a product? And that naturally led me to kind of the behavioral psychology world, learning more about the science of habit formation. And I was a science major anyway. I've always been interested in science. I took mostly hard science stuff, chemistry and physics classes when I was in uh, college, but I, I kind of naturally got pulled into the research. And then I started writing about it like on my own. I had a, a Word doc. I think it was like 60 or 65 pages long. It was just kind of my thoughts on habits from both what I had learned practicing it as an athlete and what I was learning, researching about it and reading more about the science. And eventually I was like, all right, I need to just publish something. So uh, late 2012, uh, November of 2012, I published uh, my first article on jamesclear.com and then that that kind of took off faster than anything else I had done. And uh, pretty soon, you know, within uh, two years, I think I had over 100,000 subscribers. And now we've got, you know, a couple million people coming to the site every month. So it's um, it was first as a practice and then as a research. And then now it's as a writer and someone who, you know, is trying to kind of share these ideas and distill them in the most practical and actionable way. Man, I'm I'm so excited for you because I've seen your growth and just to have the kind of audience that you've been able to build up and the lives that you've impacted, that that is I'm in awe and I'm I'm curious, why do you think this has resonated with so many people so quickly? Because it does it doesn't in a way if you kind of step back and maybe this is just me in a way it kind of doesn't make sense because this is a really broad topic and sometimes mm. these broad topics don't you know, don't always succeed because it's in a way it's too broad. And we're told, Hey, you got to niche down. But what, why do you think the, the whole habit development thing has taken off? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. One is that it's, uh, it is, it is a broad topic, but it's good in the sense that we all have habits. I mean, literally all of us are dealing with this. It doesn't matter what your work is, what your, uh, personal goals are, a good and bad habits, they shape our lives. I mean, the some of the research studies will tell you it's like 40 to 50% of your behaviors any day are, are automatic and habitual. But I think that the impact is actually far greater than that because in many ways, habits are kind of like an entrance ramp on a highway. You know, you like start doing something and then they send you hurtling in this direction and it shapes the conscious choices that you take for minutes or hours afterward. You know, take just like the the little habit of pulling your phone out of your pocket. You'll stand in line and pull your phone out. Now that is more or less automatic or mindless. But then what you do for the next 20 minutes, whether it's playing a video game or answering emails or browsing social media, 
Um, there are many conscious choices in that 20 minute time frame. It's not all habitual, but it was all shaped by that one little habitual action of pulling your phone out. And there are all sorts of things like that throughout our day where there's kind of these, I call them decisive moments where they, they're like a fork in the road. And if you can master that little moment, it really shapes the hours to come. So I think the first reason is because habits, we all feel that at some level that habits are an incredibly powerful force, maybe one of the most powerful forces in our lives. But then the second point about your topic, sometimes broad top or about your question, sometimes broad topics don't go over uh, that well or don't catch people's attention because they're um, a little too watered down, I guess. They're, they're too generic. And I think that that comes down to how I try to write about the topic and how I frame it. So the two things that I think really resonate with people, and this is one of these is, uh, well, both of them actually are very core concepts in the book. So the first one is that 1% changes can compound into something really significant. Uh, if you, the power of getting 1% better every day is not intimidating on a daily basis, but can be very surprising in the results that it delivers over time. So people gravitate toward that concept. They like this idea that changes can be small and powerful, which is one reason why I chose the word atomic, because it, it means both tiny and the, the source of incredible power. Um, but then the second thing is that we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And so often the conversation about habits and behavior change or achievements of any kind is like set a goal, be more ambitious, have purpose and drive and so on. And uh, it's not that I think those, those things aren't useful. They're fine. But it's just that at the end of the day, whether or not you set a goal for something does not determine very much about the progress you make. What determines whether or not you make progress is the system that you have. And Atomic Habits, this book that I just finished, is intended to be an instruction manual or a guide for building a better system where good habits naturally emerge and bad habits fade away. And so I think the combination of those two things, the fact that habits are incredibly potent and we all feel that at some level, and talking about improvement as 1% changes organized toward building a better system I think that that way of framing the concept, um, for whatever reason, those combinations of things have led to some massive growth. Makes perfect sense, man. And I tell you, it's uh, I was playing devil's advocate, obviously, here a little bit. I, the way you write about it is so engaging and so fascinating. And you've been a real a big reason why I have shifted uh, the way I think about habits. I think before I started reading your stuff, I thought of habits as um, kind of a small part of my day. You know, they were either bad habits or good habits. And I did some things that weren't great sometimes during a day and some things that were good. But that was like maybe 10% of my day. I guess that's the way I was thinking about it. And now hmm. I realize that everything is habits. I mean, like every microsecond is driven by a habit because that's the way our brains work to conserve energy. And it's just I'm, I wasn't paying attention to those things. So now I'm being really, really mindful of, uh, you know, what, what are my habits doing and, and where are they taking me? And that, that's been a huge shift for me. You know, one way to think about a habit is that, and I, I kind of lay out this uh, this way of thinking um, in chapter three, which is that habits are like automatic solutions to the problems that you face. So you, you go through life and you're facing problems, little problems all day long. And sometimes we wouldn't even phrase it that way. Like, you know, you take something simple like tying your shoes, for example. Well, getting your, two shoe, getting your shoe tied is a problem that your brain needs to solve. And the first time that you face a problem, you're just kind of experimenting with different ways or testing different ways of solving it. You don't really know what to do yet. And, you know, so your parents are teaching you how to tie your shoe or so on. But then you do it 
40 or 50 or 100 times, and eventually it starts to click, and your brain automates that solution. And pretty soon, you can tie your shoes while you're having a conversation and so on. But that's true not just for little stuff. It's true everywhere. Like you said, habits are, it's everything is habits. Um, so, you know, you get done with a long day and you feel exhausted. And that's a problem that your brain starts looking for a solution for. And so you can learn different ways of solving that problem. You could, uh, you know, play video games for an hour and maybe that'll relieve your anxiety. Or you could um, get a bowl of ice cream or watch an hour of Netflix, bite your nails. Like all of these are possible solutions. Um, or you could meditate for 10 minutes or go for a run. And over time, you start to learn what the solution is that solves that problem. Your brain begins to automate it, just like tying your shoes. And uh, I think the key point here is that the original way that you learn to solve a problem, the original habit that you learned, is not necessarily the optimal way. And what, as soon as you realize that, you can start looking at all these habits that you have that fill up your life and realize that what I'm doing right now to solve the problems I'm facing, now I can start to look at those and see, like, which ones do I need to restructure? Which ones do I need to adjust? And uh, as soon as you realize that and you start to understand how habits work, then the power kind of shifts back to you. You feel less like a less like the victim of your habits and more like the architect of them. And then you can start looking for ways to change them and improve them. I love that. I, I guess I never really thought of it that way. When, when you were speaking, I was thinking it's kind of like a bit of code. Uh, computer code, right? Mm. It's like, hey, it's uh, you can choose all these different code packets, and we've made those choices, but they're that's not necessarily the best solution. Not not all of those are the best solution. So, um, uh, how are we automating a lot of these things? We can consciously change those. It may not be easy at first, but they're all automated, which is fantastic. Um, so let, let me give you a little bit of context because wh where I see my audience struggling there's a few areas we all struggle with with a few different things but i i find that when you're finally out there on your own as a freelance writer or copywriter um we now have to do two things first we got to wear all the hats so there's a lot of different things that we have to get at least good at or competent doing whereas before maybe we've had a job where we only have to be good at one or two things um and there's nobody there telling us what to do so it's always up to us everything is up to us that is a liberating thing. It's also a very scary thing. And what I find is when, when you have those things together, we're not consistently doing the things that will keep our business healthy. Um, so I'm curious in the context of specifically two things, one would be marketing your business, which is an area where a lot of us don't have very good healthy habits in. And then doing the client work, which is the production side. So there's the marketing side and then the production side. Um, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about systems. I love what you said earlier. You don't rise up to the level of your goals, which is what we all tend to do. You fall to the level of your systems. I'd like to start talking a little bit about systems and how we can start putting systems in place so that these things actually get done and get done right instead of like, ah, eh, I don't feel like doing it or I'll do it tomorrow, that kind of thing. Mm. So... In the book, I divide habits into kind of four. It's like every habit is like a loop, like a feedback loop. And so, you know, you can imagine this a habit by definition is a behavior that you're repeating again and again. So you're kind of running that loop over and over. And I like to divide uh, that loop into four different stages. And by doing that, uh, it kind of ends up giving you four levers that you can pull. Uh, and when the levers are in the right positions, building good habits is much easier. And when they're in the wrong positions, building them is much harder. 
And so together, those four levers kind of give us a framework, so to speak, for building a better system or for building a more effective habit. So, so let me walk through those four right now. We, we won't go into all of them in detail, but I'll, I'll give you uh, an overview and then uh, we can pick one or two that we'll, where we'll dive in. So um, the four stages of a habit, the first stage is the cue. And this is what prompts you to do the habit. It's kind of, it's what catches your attention, so to speak. So, you know, let's take just a very common example. You like walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. So that's the, it's like a visual cue. The next stage is the craving, what I call the craving. And the craving is some kind of prediction or interpretation about the cue. So for example, if you walk in, you see the plate of cookies and then your mind predicts, uh, oh, those are going to be really tasty. I should have a bite. Then you have a reason to move forward. But you could imagine another person who, you know, for example, just got done finishing a, a big meal and maybe they ate five cookies at the end of it. And then they walk from the dining room into the kitchen and they see a plate of cookies and they think, oh, you know, I'm stuffed. Like, I don't want to eat anything right now. So the interpretation that you have after you see the cue makes a big difference and determines what your response is going to be like. So let's say you see the cookies. That's the cue. You think, oh, those are going to be tasty. So that's the craving. The third stage is the response. So this is the actual habit itself, the behavior you perform. And then the fourth stage is the reward. And the reward serves two purposes. The first purpose is it satisfies the craving. So you think this cookie is going to be tasty and then you eat it and then you feel like, oh, that tastes good. So it satisfies the, the expectation, the prediction that you made. And then the second thing is it teaches you for the next time. So if a response, if a, a habit is enjoyable, productive, satisfying, then it teaches you, hey, next time you see that cue, let's do this again. Whereas if it's uh, unsatisfying, so let's say, for example, that you uh, hate oatmeal, um, oatmeal raisin cookies, and you happen to eat one of those and you think, oh, it tastes really bad. Well, the next time you have a reason to avoid that when you see that particular cue. So um, those four stages, cue, craving, routine, reward, cue, craving, response, reward. Those are... Um, those are the four ways I like to break up that habit loop. Now, associated with each of those things is this like lever or what I call the four laws of behavior change that you can use to make it easier to build a better system or to build a better habit. So the four laws are make it obvious. So you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious. Make it attractive. Um, you want the, that second stage, the craving, you want to make it as attractive as possible. So you have a reason for approaching it or a reason for uh, doing the behavior. The third one is make it easy. So you want the actual habit itself to be as easy as possible to do. And then the fourth one is make it satisfying. If you can find a way to make it immediately satisfying, then you have a reason to repeat it in the future. And so those four areas are kind of the four places we can intervene to build a more effective system or to make it easier to build habits. I love that. I love, so th that this makes perfect sense. Now let's, Let's take that and, and put it in a, in a very specific situation. I just had a coaching client last week. Uh, she's really been struggling with um, prospecting. She knows she's got to get this done. I mean, it's not an issue of uh, ignorance, uh, but it's been weeks and she can't seem to get it done. And mm -hmm. so, you know, she's obviously putting it off, other priorities. It, it's, it's, it wasn't an issue of actually putting it off. She said, you know, all this is happening and then this came up and then that came up. But look, we can all say that. So how can we then take this system in some of these uh, factors and kind of increase the probability that this can start turning into a habit for her? 
Okay, so I'll give you uh, I'll give you two, uh, and we're going to focus in this case. We'll focus on the uh, the first law, so make it obvious, and we'll focus on the third law, make it easy. So perfect. Uh, the first thing, is, and this is a place I like to start a lot when we're dealing with building a system or improving your habits, is with what I call environment design. And the basic idea here is that it's more effective to create an environment where willpower is not required than to rely on your willpower to overpower the environment. Why um, is that, by the way? Well, he, because, the, well, first of all, there's just a good body of research on self-control and willpower that shows that the people who have the highest amount of self-control or who exhibit the greatest willpower, grit, self-control, perseverance, whatever you want to call it, um, it is often not the case that they have like some internal ability that is beyond what the normal person does. It is simply that they exhibit greater willpower because they face fewer temptations. So um, in other words, if you're not being tempted all the time, it's easier to draw upon that reserve and resist every now and then. And the way that I would phrase it is that uh, I have never seen someone consistently stick to positive habits in a negative environment. If you're constantly surrounded by stuff, it's just hard to res resist the pull of what engulfs us. You know, like you, um, you may not want to eat fast food, but if every day on the way to work, you drive past 15 fast food restaurants, it's kind of hard to never go um, because you're seeing it all the time. So uh, anyway, the point here is that by shifting the environment, uh, you want to do two things. The first thing is you want to reduce exposure to the things that pull you off course. So this client of yours who's uh, saying like, oh, this is coming up and that's coming up. Um, I don't know exactly what the distractions are that she's facing, but we can imagine what some of them are based on what we all face. So for example, uh, getting notifications on your phone. I and mean, this is the type of thing that can derail you all the time. So I have uh, a rule where I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. So that at least gives me like a four hour block in the morning where I can do work without getting text messages, phone calls, social media updates, all that stuff. Um, and the idea here is actually for your, for your good habits, the first law is to make it obvious. For a bad habit, you want to invert that law and you want to make it invisible. So the things that distract you, the things that pull you off course, you want to make those, uh, the exposure to those cues as invisible as possible. Um, you know, again, I'm just uh, coming up with hypothetical examples here, but if she, like many freelancers, works out of her house, then, you know, one struggle that I had early on in my freelance career, because I did a, a fair bit of it for the first year or two that I was getting started, was that I didn't really have an office space. I, I was working from my couch or my kitchen table. And uh, from the kitchen table, I could see the television. And so, like, if you want to watch Netflix or play video games or turn on the news, that's just a continual exposure to that cue. Now, there are a variety of steps you could take there. Uh, one thing, for example, is you could put the television inside like a wall unit that has like a cabinet so you don't see it as often. Or you could unplug the television after each use and then only plug it in when you can say the name of the show that you want to watch so you don't just like mindlessly turn it on. Um, if you want to be really extreme, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out and set it back up when you really want to watch something. But the point there is to, to try to reduce exposure to that thing that pulls you off course. And sometimes, you know, again, this depends on living situation. It's not always possible to have a separate room. That was a big win for me when I could move from the kitchen table uh, to a, I moved to a different apartment that had a, a room that was actually my office. And so then suddenly work was something that happened in there and personal life was something that happened out here. And I was able to divide uh, the two much more easily and not get distracted as much. So 
that type of environment design, um, it's not always possible. If you live in, say, a studio uh, apartment where you, you don't have that kind of space, then you can do what kindergarten uh, rooms do, which is they divide the room into activity zones. And so you could have like specifically a corner for writing or a chair for writing. Um, I know one writer who he has, uh, he's uninstalled the web browser on his desktop. His desktop is just for writing. Um, his laptop is for research. So it has the re uh, web browser on it. And then his uh, tablet is for reading and like Kindle and stuff like that. So he, he tries to divide his digital devices into activity zones. Um, but the point here is to have clear distinctions in the environment so that it's easier for you to fall into the habit of doing things the same way. You know, one of the, the challenges of many of our modern devices, like a smartphone, for example, smartphones are great, but you can do like 800 different things on them. So it becomes very difficult to associate it with one task or in this case uh, with just a productive task um, because it not only is the place where you call prospective clients, but it's also the place where you check Twitter and Instagram and browser email and do a bunch of other stuff. Um, so the more that you can divide things up, either digitally or physically, the better it is or the more likely it is that you'll develop a habit associated with that particular task or situation or uh, location. So I'll stop there for now. That's like a good example of the first law of making it obvious or of uh, making bad habits invisible. And then we can also talk about the third one. Yeah, I I absolutely love that. And, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking of several examples that have kept me, you know, I've lost 30 pounds over the past almost year. And nice. Congratulations. I, thanks, man. Thank you. It's, it's, you know, honestly, it's just been, it's been habits and mostly eating habits and there's exercise habits there as well. Um, five days at the gym. I, you know, I hate to miss one because it's like my week feels incomplete. It's kind of like that check the boxes, Jerry Seinfeld mm -hmm. story. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, one of the things that has really helped me during the week is I find when I do eat, if I overeat, it's going to be on the weekend and it's because I'm not in my office during the week. I'm really focused. I got a big day and I'm in my home office and, um, something about having to walk downstairs to get some, I just don't even want to do it, it because there's some <laughs> friction there, right? Um, and then the other thing is when my family's home, like this summer, you know, the kids, they're, they did go to camps, but they're here and it's noisy. And I find when I leave my office just to get a drink of water, I get asked a million questions. Where is this? When are you going to do that? You know, can you do this for me? And um, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> so I, I stay in my office and I don't snack. And most <laughs> days I'm not even eating lunch and I'm fine with that. But it's kind of like a, I, I didn't realize it. It's kind of like an accidental making it obvious kind of thing, right? It's so I guess it's worked out. Um, so I, I love the, the obvious one. So let's talk a little bit about the easy because I think that's where um, maybe a lot of people are having a lot of trouble. They, they feel where they tell themselves that it's hard, that it's going to be painful. So how can we change that? So uh, making it easy is where it's probably the first place I would say to intervene uh, if you're going to work on building a better habit. This is probably the – picking the right habit will make everything else easier. Picking the wrong habit will make everything else harder. So you can employ as many strategies as you want. But if you're trying to build a habit of, say, doing 100 push-ups a day – uh, it's just, it's just hard to do that every single day. It's going to require a lot of effort. It's going to require a lot of planning. You're going to have to start changing your life around to get it uh, fit in there. It's just, um, yeah, for a lot of people, it's a big change. So if you can make the change much smaller, uh, then it can be, um, you'll be much more likely to stick to it. Now, just because it's smaller doesn't mean it's not going to be effective. Um, so 
applying this to you know this client situation and kind of building on the the current example of your own situation you just gave one of the things that i like to think about when we talk about making habits easy is friction um so the friction associated with a task has a large influence on whether or not we do it and one way that i uh, like to talk about this is by using a metaphor of a garden hose so Imagine that you have a garden hose and it has some water trickling out of it, but there's like a, a bend in the middle of the hose. Now, if you want to get more water uh, pushing through the hose, then you have two options. You can either crank up the valve and like force more water through the bend, or you can just untwist the hose and remove the bend and let the water flow through freely. And so often when we try to build better habits or achieve some kind of goal in our life, we do the equivalent of cranking up the valve. We just try to overpower all the things in our life. We just say, all right, you need to work harder. You need to want it more. You need to have more ambition. You need to have grit and perseverance and, um, and so on. Now, that can get results, but just like cranking up the valve on the hose, it increases the amount of tension in the system. So you can, you can get the outcome, but it's going to lead to additional stress and wear you down a little bit. Meanwhile, releasing the, the twist in the hose will relieve tension and in many cases get a very similar outcome. And so the point here is to start looking around and you can do this by mapping out the processes that you do each day and then trying to find or identify different points, different bottlenecks in that chain where you can streamline things or reduce the amount of tension associated with the task. So there have been many successful businesses that have been built this way. If you take, um, take Uber, for example, they could have mapped out the chain of processes, of behaviors that a person would perform if they were going to get a ride across town, for example. And it starts with things like getting to call the taxi company and they have to wait on the curb and they got to get into the taxi and then they drive across town and they get out and they have to pay and they have to, you know, and so on. And so they map out each little thing that's happening. And you could do the same thing for whatever the process is, whether it's prospecting or getting uh, the writing done on a given day, just go ahead and write down each little stage. Then... Uh, and this is true for most businesses, what you're trying to do is trying to find a more frictionless way to solve the problem that your customers are facing or that you as an individual are facing. So Uber could have looked at one of those stages, let's say uh, the payment process at the end and said, all right, when people get out of the cab, it usually takes like two or three minutes. They got to they get some change out of their, uh, uh, their wallet or their purse. Then they have to pay the cab driver, then they get changed back, and then, you know, or they take their credit card out, they swipe it, you got to wait for the credit card to process, and then you get out. And so they're like, how can we make that more frictionless? Well, we could have them upload their credit card information to the app beforehand, and then as soon as they arrive at their destination, they just get out and they're charged automatically. There's no exchange. They don't have to wait for anything. Um, and that's one way, one little way, to make that process more frictionless. And then by doing that across, you know, four or five or ten different areas of the, the behavioral chain, you end up with a, an experience that feels much more frictionless uh, to the end user. And the same thing can be true for your daily habits or for your prospecting or writing style. You look at the chain of these processes and you try to find as many as you can that you can either eliminate, automate, or streamline. Um, and some of my favorite automation uh, tools, I'm putting that in air quotes right now, are actually not automations in the software sense, but they're one-time choices that pay off again and again. So, for example, buying a computer with a faster processor. One-time choice, one-time expense, but it can lead to faster work on everything that you do on your computer. Um, 
if you want to uh, be more effective each day, getting better sleep is a great way to uh, show up and be more productive each day. So there are a variety of one-time choices you could make there that can make getting better sleep an easier habit to fall into. So you could buy a better mattress uh, that you sleep on better at night. You could purchase blackout curtains so that your room is dark. You could buy a sleep mask um, so that you can sleep when you're traveling or you know on the road in hotels. You could purchase earplugs if you're in a noisy environment. Um, all of those are examples of one-time actions that pay off again and again in the future. And they're simple ways of trying to automate uh, different portions of a, a productive process. So um, the first thing to think about when it comes to making it easy is reducing friction. Uh, the second thing to think about is using what I call the two-minute rule. But I'll go ahead and pause for a second and see if you have anything to add or questions on that. Yeah, yeah. So let me add a little bit of context or maybe use an example and you tell me if I'm on the right track. So let's just say, let's take the problem of prospecting because that's, that's a very common one. I'm not doing I'm not sending warm prospecting emails out. It keeps getting pushed from one day to the next. Um, for me, I think I would ask myself, what is it that I'm, what part of that process am I the, the most scared of or the one that I'm avoiding the most? And let's just say it's like actually sending out the email, like writing it out and sending it. That just feels scary to me. Um, what I would probably do is we're, if we're talking about automating and streamline, maybe what I can do is, okay, tomorrow... Um, I'm going to do this. I'm actually going to do it first thing in the morning because then there's no excuse that, well, I got behind. Um, so that would be one way I think I might do it. The other might be I'm going to write th three names down, three prospects I'm going to reach out to. That way when I get there in the morning to my desk, I don't have to wonder, okay, what am I doing again? Who am I contacting? Um, and then I might even have their contact information ready. So when I get to my desk, it's going to be first thing in the morning. I have no excuse. Um, I've automated that in a way, I think, at least that's how I think about it. I've streamlined it, and, and now I know exactly what I need to do and what I need to send, and, and now I'm kind of in a place where i got to get it done. Maybe a third one might be the fact that I've narrowed it down to three instead of like 20 because that seems mm -hmm. overwhelming, right? So that's too much friction. Is that maybe a good method to, or a good way so to So I think – you're employing both the second law of behavior change, which make it attractive, and the third, which is make it easy. So the actions like uh, having a list of three names and having their contact information ahead of time, that's what I would call you're like priming the environment. You're making it as easy as possible to do that habit, which I think is great and super productive way to do it. Um, by limiting it to three names rather than 25, you're making it more attractive. It's not as overwhelming. It's not as uncertain now. Um, and secondly, by doing it first thing in the morning, uh, which I think is a huge thing. You also are making it more attractive because one of the big things that determines whether a habit is attractive to us or not is the timing, the time of day that we choose to ask ourselves to do it. Um, a lot of times people will say things like everybody's got the same 24 hours in a day and you know, like you have to make the most of the time and so on. But in fact, the time, it is true that that is a constraint, but in many ways, time is secondary to energy. If you don't have the energy to fully utilize a given hour, then it doesn't really matter whether you have the hour free or not. And in many cases, what happens as the day goes on is, as you mentioned, we get interrupted more. Uh, you start putting out fires. Other people's agenda starts to become, starts to override your own agenda. And uh, so the longer that you wait, it's often the case that the harder it is to, to stick to the habit. Um, one of my friends told me if, if I start the day with a good habit, it almost always continues to be a good day um, or it almost always continues well. If the day doesn't start well, then with like a Herculean amount of effort, I can turn it around 
but it's really hard for me to get it to end as well if I don't get off on a good start. <laughs> and so, ball, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and I think uh, to your point about starting strong and making sure that you get the most important task done or the thing that you're avoiding, um, it can end up paying big div- big dividends for the rest of the day. It's not just about the three prospects, prospecting emails that you're sending. Um, it's also, you know, can start you off on a really good foot and give you some momentum for the next task. Okay, cool. So I, I think we're on track here. So what would be the, the second factor here? So this is what I like to call the two-minute rule. And the idea here is that habit, a habit should take two minutes or less to do. Um, and this is particularly important in the beginning when you're building a habit. One, once you have a habit build and something that you do every day, like once you're, once you're going to the gym four days a week, okay, sure. If you want to expand the routine and try to find ways to optimize or improve it, that's fine. But at first, before it's a habit, when you're just trying to get started, the most crucial thing is to focus on always doing the first two minutes of the behavior. And so often this is not how we approach change. You know, for example, we might say, all right, I want to start prospecting. So I need to do a ton of research to find the best prospecting email templates I can find. Um, and you can spend weeks looking around and trying to figure out the ideal way to send the perfect email. Uh, same thing is true for trying to come up with an idea for a side business or finding the perfect program to lose weight or the perfect uh, template to work out. And we're so focused on optimizing that we don't get around to mastering the art of showing up. And the, you know, the great irony of this, of course, is that if, you, and if a habit is not established, it can never be improved. So you have to master the art of showing up before you can optimize anything. And the way that I like to phrase it or a little mantra I keep in mind is standardize before you optimize. So before you worried about before you worry about sending the perfect prospecting email or, um, or find the perfect stand- prospects or yeah anything anything like that before you worry about optimizing that process make it the standard that you send three each day um, and when you're sending three each day even if they're super short I mean it literally in the beginning it actually doesn't really matter that much about the results it's more about building the habit of showing up so you really could say I mean it could just be like a two sentence email just saying like Hey, you know, I was just wondering if you had five minutes to chat or something like that. That might not actually be an effective email, but it's effective at getting you to build the habit. And once you've done that for, say, every day for, you know, a month in a row or two months in a row, uh, then you can start to worry about, all right, am I finding the right prospects here? Like, can I, let me make sure that I'm like getting in touch with the right people. And then how should I frame this? Can I be outlining these emails better? Is there a better way to, you know, to frame this ask and so on? And, uh, but it's only once you've become that type of person that you have the chance to, to optimize the results and improve. If you're just focused on theorizing and coming up with the best plan, but then you never get around to executing on it, then it doesn't really do a whole lot of good. I, that you right you hit the nail on the head right there. I find that writers tend to be perfectionists and we don't want to do anything half-assed. You know, we want to make sure we, you know, if we're going to do it, it's going to be done right. And this this tendency to try to optimize everything. I see it every day, and I totally get it. But you you can't you can't improve what you don't already have, right? So I I absolutely love that. Um, I'm curious to hear how you feel that accountability. Uh, what role accountability plays in all of this? And you know, is it really a factor? Uh, how important is it? So I see it as influencing the uh, the second and the fourth laws of behavior change. What I mean by that is uh, being accountable, uh, if we're going to phrase it this way, it means that you belong 
as part of a group or you belong as part in that group could just be two people, right? It could be you and your accountability partner, but you, you belong to some tribe and that tribe has expectations. Uh, in the case of a formal accountability partner, their expectation might be that they, uh, that you run together at 6am each morning or that you, um, are two accountability partners on, you know, writing, uh, and you send each other your, your finished drafts at the end of each week or something like that. Um, but all the social groups, all of the, the subcultures that we are part of have expectations associated with them. And, you know, one way to phrase this is by talking about social norms. So, for example, when you walk onto an elevator, everybody turns around and faces the front of the elevator. Now, there's no reason you have to do that. You could walk onto an elevator and face the back, but it would violate the social norm. It would just feel a little weird to all the other people on the elevator. And so we don't do it because we want to uh, fit in with the expectations of the crowd. And this becomes a very powerful form of behavior change and of habit formation if you can find a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. And I've seen this in my own career as an entrepreneur and as a writer. You know, like I'm in these groups now, whether it's a mastermind group for entrepreneurship or a writing group on Facebook or stuff like that, where that was not my norm. You know, even just five years ago uh, or 10 years ago when I was getting started before I had a business, I, I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family. I didn't have any professional writers that I knew. There was no one for me to hang out with or for that to be like the normal behavior. But now I belong to those subcultures and I have friends in those groups. And so in order to maintain my friendships with them and feel like I you know, belong in the group, there are a variety of habits that go along with that. One of them is publishing consistently, for example. Um, writing books is another one or uh, talking about revenue and expenses and, you know, ways to improve the business. Like all of these things are these little kind of like um, invisible habits that are associated with being part of that culture. And so I would not call that a formal accountability group, but I think um, implicitly any of the subcultures that we are part of exert some kind of pressure on us, peer pressure. And peer pressure doesn't have to be bad. It can be very productive. If you're in the right group, peer pressure is amazing. Um, because it compels you to act in accordance with those norms and you start to adopt the habits of the people around you. And I think that that phrase that I mentioned earlier, you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. It sort of encapsulates the, the central idea here, which is that, you know, for many people going to the gym and working out four days a week, that feels like a real big sacrifice. It feels like a lot of work. But there are also people who that is just normal for. It's not. It's just how they live their normal life. And if you can uh, become part of a group like that then, and develop friendships there and so on, then it starts to become easier for you to see that as normal behavior. And the same is true for entrepreneurship and building a business. You know, if you're around people who all run successful businesses, then that starts to seem like a, a pretty real option to you. Um, so that's how I would describe the. Uh, the implicit accountability that we all face each day. And then, of course, there's a formal accountability partner or an accountability group that you could create that actually judges your action or tries to keep you on pace uh, or in some cases punishes you or makes you feel guilty if you don't publish consistently or if you don't stick to the, the things that you say. And that, I think, is more about the fourth law of behavior change, more about making it satisfying because you were able to hold up to your word or you know, follow through on what you said you would do. Or unsatisfying if you you know slip and you don't want to uh, be the one who doesn't show up for the running group or doesn't have their draft into the writing group and so on. 
You know, I hadn't really given much thought to the implicit kind, but as you started describing that, I, I thought of a few examples. And at the gym, you know, I go at the same time every weekday. And it's so funny. It's the same people there. Uh, of course, the same mm. people after about February 15th, it's the same people there. <laughs> and uh, it's so like, I don't know the names of most of the people. Uh, I've only because I'm not really that social there. I just I go get sure. my job done and, and get out. But a lot of people are very social there. And it's funny, like, um, suddenly you stop seeing someone. You're like, I wonder what happened to that guy. I don't even know his name, but I wonder what mm. happened to that. I haven't seen him. And, and I think everyone kind of feels that way is maybe that's not the reason they do it. But that is a component of it is. I show up at the same time. Those are like my people. It would be weird if I stopped showing up, even if I came at a different time. Because well, I do think that that's the uh, the strongest component of CrossFit. Um, you know, and for all the criticism CrossFit receives for different reasons, I the community aspect is very powerful, and they um, it's much more social than a normal gym would be. And people do expect you to be there. They you know they all talk and they grill out or go to dinner afterward or whatever. Like it's. Um, it's a community. Uh, and that in many ways, honestly, the same way people get a sense of community from going to a church, for example, uh, they, for some people, they feel like that's church for them. Um, they like, you know, that's where they find some kind of tribe or hang out with them. They see those people five or six days a week. So, uh, yeah, it can be whatever the social group is or the, the subculture that you're a part of, it can be a very powerful driver of behavior. Fantastic. Well, James, uh, I, I don't want to leave without asking you about your book. I know it just came out, uh, I believe, last Tuesday, the October 16th. Tell us yep. about it, uh, where we can learn more about it. Yeah, so it's called Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And as I mentioned, one of the core philosophies of the book is that we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And the, the book is laid out in what I hope is a very practical, easy-to-understand format for building a better system, for explaining how habits work and how to um, how to create more effective and productive habits on a daily basis, whether that's in work or in daily life. And uh, you can check out the book and uh, see, get some bonuses and a bunch of other stuff at atomichabits.com. Awesome. Well, listen, I love your work. Uh, seriously, you have changed the way I think about this stuff. And I know that um, as a result, I mean, my, my life and specifically my health has improved over the last year. I really love the way you lay it out, that you explain it. I love the way you bring science into this without being boring. You really make it interesting. Uh, so I recommend everyone check out this book. Guys, as I said at the beginning, when you are in business for yourself, um, one of the curses, if you will, is the freedom. And with that freedom comes, you know, to use a cliche, a lot of responsibility. You have to develop habits that maybe you didn't have to develop before. You have to get good at that. And I think James is really, really good at breaking this down, making this practical. I've read some great books about habits, but they were more interesting than they were practical. And I love the way you do that. So definitely go check it out. So, James, thanks for coming in, man. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. And, um, yeah, I, I hope we can continue this at another time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a good time. The High Income Business Writing Podcast is a production of B2B Business Launcher. Learn more at b2blauncher.com.